Eli Motivates, and I'm here with Newt Bailey, who is an incredible uh, mediation coach. Uh, he trains people on how to communicate better, more effectively, uh, empathetically, uh, using a modality known as, known as um, nonviolent communication, but he prefers to call it connected communication. Uh, very happy to have Newt here with me, and I would love to um, introduce his work to the world and make sure that everybody uh, learns how much better they could be communicating. So without further ado, I'll invite you to tell us about uh, yourself and how you ended up here today. Well, I could start at the very beginning, but I'll, I'll start a little bit more recently. Okay. I am, um, as some people might be able to hear, I'm from England, but um, when I came to live in the States, 21 years ago, I became a software engineer and a manager of software engineers. Um, but I was always very interested in the ways that people communicated with each other in the workplace. It was my first time in a corporate workplace, having been a teacher, high school teacher previously. Um, and all the way from college onwards, really, I'd always been interested in how people communicate with each other, how they uh, resolve conflict or don't, how they generate and, and, and deepen conflict. Uh -huh. um, and how they collaborate with ease versus collaborate with difficulty, that kind of thing. And uh, so when I quit my job as a manager of uh, software engineers, um, some, when was that? 14 years ago now. Uh -huh. I, uh, I started training to be a mediator and from there went on to be a communication coach, communication trainer, as well as a mediator. And uh, you met me in one of my public workshops, the Communication Dojo, and invited me to do this. And so here we are. Wonderful. That's a, that's a great little background, uh, Newt. Um, and sounds like you've spanned quite a few careers there. High school teacher, uh, engineer, manager of engineers. I'm assuming you went from engineer to manage engineers and not directly to managing engineers. I did, yes. Um, really? So you didn't spend any time I know you were correct the first time. I, I was I was an engineer, then you know senior engineer, and then you know ended up managing the team. Wonderful. wonderful. I was um, gonna talk to you Neil, about this transition from uh, uh, what they call an individual contributor position, where you're you're writing code or you're you're basically dealing with um, uh, a particular set of, of of work responsibilities, and then navigating to where you are now responsible for not just getting the work done, but ensuring that a team functions cohesively and is able to accomplish the larger goal, of course, you know, in their individual ways. That is a transition that I'm also still kind of going through as I, you know, um, invite more people into my organization at increasingly senior levels. And I find that it brings with it a lot of challenges. So I'd love to hear, uh, Mute, about your journey and whether, was that rough? Was that bumpy? Was that choppy? Uh, or was it a pretty easy transition? And, and, and what did that teach you about communication, empathy, and the work that you do now? Hmm. Well, I think there were, there, there were definitely some bumpy things. Yeah, for sure. I mean, uh, I definitely had... Uh, um, some ch challenging relationships with with uh, a couple of people on my team for sure um and 
I think the the important thing for me was that I I knew that, uh, or it quickly became apparent to me, even if I didn't know immediately, that I'm now in a very different job than the job I was in previously. Um, sometimes a person can be a designer or an engineer or a salesperson or whatever, and then they get promoted into a position, position where people are reporting to them. And it's easy to be like, yeah, I'm just like a good designer or engineer or salesperson, so now I get to manage other people, you know, but I'm still a designer or an engineer or a, or a, um, a salesperson. Uh-huh. And um, that's just not true. You're now a manager and a manager is a whole other job. It's a whole other job from being a designer or an engineer or a salesperson or whatever, you know, that the individual contributor job was. And so I was aware of that and I, I, um, I got sent to management training, thankfully, early on and that gave me some good guidance and um, some um, things to watch out for. Uh-huh. Um, I didn't avoid all of the pitfalls by any means, but at least I avoided some of them. And um, I think the most important thing for me about it is to is not to imagine that because you now have a title of manager, that you're now superior to the people who report to you. Because uh-huh. you, know? you used to do the job that they did, and your manager was not superior to you. They just had a title and a position and a role and a set of responsibilities. It doesn't make them a more important human being. They might be more knowledgeable, they might have more expertise, but they don't get to talk to you like you're somehow less than them. And um, so I never wanted to do that with anyone who was on my team. Of course, we'd have to interview the members of my team to know if I ever did, but um, in the annual surveys, we used to get pretty good results in terms of people's satisfaction. So I think I think I was doing okay, you know. But that was the big thing for me, it's like, okay, I've just taken on a whole nother job. I better learn how to do it. Wonderful. And that makes a lot of sense. Uh, you know, I hear that great leaders lead by example. They, they lead by, by doing things a certain way. Um, and that includes obviously communicating from that place of humility that even though my title says VP or director, like you said, I am not in any way different from, from the people that I'm working with. Is there any particular um, types of language or wording or, or, or things that people say that lead others to feel this distance and, and importance? You know, obviously there's a wrong way to do it and a better way to do it. So I'm curious to hear, what are some of the things that you've picked up that, you know, tend to create that barrier, that division and cause that you know, alienation of that, that, that implies one person is superior to the other. So many, but I mean, roughly speaking, oh, and by the way, you said great leaders lead by example. All leaders lead by example. All people lead by example. And so if you have someone in a management position, the higher up the tree they are, the more they're leading by example. So if you've got someone high up the tree who uh, repeatedly shouts at people, then that's the example that they're setting. That's what we do here. That's, the, that's what they're telling the people around them. And so therefore that will be a company with more people shouting at each other, you know, that kind of thing. But, so that would be one way of doing it, thinking that you can start raising your voice at people, you know. Um, uh, all of the classic things, you know, personal attacks, you know, you're being stupid. Are you always this stupid? Um, or um, criticisms which are not constructive, like, no, that's terrible. Just start it over, do it again. 
you know, no information, no guidance, no uh, data to really work with, just negative criticism without, um, without coaching, without guidance. Blame. Um, the problem, the reason we're doing so badly is because of you. We were doing fine before you joined the team, you know, this kind of thing, and, and a million other flavors of blame. There's another, blame's part of a category which I'd call denial of responsibility. And that means it's not my fault. And part of that is blame. It's not my fault, it's your fault. And another form of denial of responsibility is I have no choice. I have to I have to do it this way because of the CEO or because of the you know circumstances I am just a victim of circumstance and so I have to I have to uh, reduce your pay or not give you any more uh, say in the project that previously you had a lot of say in you know that kind of way. Oh. And then the the last one that comes to mind well there's threats as well it's a big one if you if you you better do this or else um but the other one I was thinking of is demanding language. You know, a lot of managers think, well, now I get to just tell you what to do. It's not even a demand, it's a command. You know, if I want it done, I just say, hey, do this. And um, not realizing that that's sometimes necessary, perhaps, but frequently not, and has a great cost to it, to the quality of relationship between you and the people who are reporting to you. Trust will go down, goodwill will go down, sense of um, uh, inclusion and sense of mattering even, that kind of thing. Lots of things which will, will just go down if all you ever do is just tell people what they've got to do and never have any interest in their viewpoint on what do you think is the most efficient way to do this or how do you feel about the new direction that we're taking, et cetera, et cetera. If you're not doing that and you're just being the person who knows everything and knows exactly what everyone's got to do all the time, there's a good chance that it will backfire. There are exceptions, of course, but uh, in general, it's a very costly way to proceed. You know, and I got to be really honest here, Newt. I've definitely gotten pushback on that, right? That I was kind of coming at things very single-mindedly. I was, um, you know, not getting input on what people felt about these things that I was doing. So I'm wondering, you know, if I do decide to start showing more interest, how do I do this? and and be really sincere about it how do i do it so that you know they don't the team doesn't feel like well i'm just doing this as you know a, a routine you know to basically make sure that i've heard their side before then going with what i think is a way to do it and because i am the person calling the shots you know i'll be definitely stressing or emphasizing my way so i'm wondering if there's a way to truly be able to to, to factor in what the people are saying and still be able to maybe sometimes, you know, insert or 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 include my opinion in the proposed solutions. Well, it's not an either or, you know. Um, first thing you said was, how can I do it and have it be sincere? Um, well, sincerity is not something that can be faked, right? So you can say to someone, I really want to hear your point of view and inside be thinking, I don't really, but I've heard this is a thing that you're meant to do so that people feel like you care about their point of view. People will sniff that out within days. You know, if you're working with people in an ongoing way, they will quickly realize that what you're doing is not real and they'd be correct because you're not sincere about it, right? But there's a couple of things about sincerity, you know. Number one, if you're not sincere about being interested in the point of view of the people who you've hired, 
then perhaps you didn't hire the right people. Right? Because uh-huh. you might have hired someone where you genuinely don't think they have anything useful to offer to the situation uh, on that level of kind of decision making and so on. In which case, if you mistakenly gave them the impression that they would have some sort of uh, at least interest in their viewpoint, then they were given a false impression and maybe you hired someone who you would rather not have hired. So that's one piece about this, you know. It's hard to sincerely be curious about the perspective and viewpoint of someone whose perspective and viewpoint you don't actually respect and don't actually want to hear. Um, But another side to it is this, you know, it's not always that extreme. Sometimes it's just habit. If you're very um, self-motivating, you're the head of your organization, right? I am. Which means that you have a certain amount of drive because people who become the heads of their own organizations, they have a certain amount of drive. You've got to have drive to become the CEO, to be a founder and so on. Mm-hmm. And people with drive drive over people. It just That's the way it is. But not, not because they necessarily want to, but just because they're going, go, 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 you know. And uh, I got some more ideas today about things we could do. You know, it's just firing off, firing on all cylinders. And sometimes you you glance down occasionally and find this trampled humans underneath you kind of thing. And they're kind of going, uh, that, I didn't enjoy that the way you came into the meeting that I was facilitating and just took over and or whatever it might be. You know? um, so the thing about that for me is this, if you've ever had an experience where someone else came up with an idea that you hadn't thought of, or if you've ever had an experience where you were convinced that you were right about something and it later turned out that you were actually inaccurate or the direction you were thinking of was not ideal for you or whatever it might be, or if you've ever been in an intimate relationship with someone where you thought you were just like fantastic partner material, and the feedback you got from them was that, you know what, there's some stuff you need to work on and you didn't realize or you didn't notice, right? All of those are indicators of the fact that we all have partial view. Uh, Some of us are better than others in terms of the clarity of our vision, but there's always gonna be blind spots. And as soon as you realize the truth of that, that you have blind spots, then that's a massive uh, reason to seek out the input of other people because you're like you know what these other people can see my blind spots more easily than I can and so they're an amazing resource so now I feel fully sin- uh, sincere when I say to them what am I missing guys you know what do you think this is what I think or even the other way around sometimes as usual you know I've got an opinion on the direction we should take but before even saying mine because I don't want to influence you what do you think yeah. you know yeah that kind of idea either way around um, and then it's not an either or. If you get to the point where you, um, there's a feline friend of mine over here who's about to start making noise because she likes, she likes uh, throwing things off the coffee table. So I'm just gonna. Yeah, no worries. Yeah, we, we, we've got this some. Away. This is not a cat toy. Um, <laughs> um, so the thing I was just saying, just to finish up on what you've been saying, is you can always. There's a thing which is called a decision rule in. Um, you know, in participatory facilitation of meetings and, and reaching decisions. There's a decision rule, which is if, we don't, if we're not all in agreement, if we, in the time that we have available to talk about this, we've kind of exhausted our time. We're not all in agreement. Um, so now what? What do we do? Um, well, the decision rule might, might be in your organization. We go with Eli's decision. That's the decision rule. If we've not managed to all agree on something else, we, he calls it, you know, if like, we're split mm-hmm. in any way, 
He's going to make the call, and when he makes the call, we are going to align behind his decision. Um, and so that way, you you've not had to give up on the possibility of, you know, you calling it when someone needs to call it. I mean, that's a very important and valuable thing to have someone who's willing to do that. And the only um, essential for me of that is that if it doesn't work out, you make sure everyone remembers who made the call. Mm -hmm. I made the call. It didn't work out. I know, I remember which of you said that we should have done this other thing. I'm now starting to think that you were right about that. We'll never know because we didn't try your thing. But now we need to pivot and do something else. So as long as, as long as the person who makes the call is willing to accept the responsibility for how it goes, then people tend to be very willing to align behind, you know, most of the time. It's not always quite that simple, but in general, that's often the case. Got it. So responsibility is important. Um, and like you said, that's a really big point. You said about hiring the right people. That's something which I'd never considered. Um, as I think about this relationship and really wanting to know what the other person thinks, right? And, and realizing that that has a lot of value. Um, that, that's pretty mind-blowing. Thank you for, for saying that. Um, excellent, excellent. So um, what about in written communication? I mean, does this stuff apply at all? Because I've, I've just thought about like on LinkedIn, which I'm very active on, and a lot of people are going to be watching you on LinkedIn when I put this out, you know, I see sometimes some passive aggressive behavior coming through. I see people being very direct in their attacks, like you were talking about their direct attacks. Yeah. Um, I see all caps. I see people in some ways reverting back to, uh, you know, suboptimal ways of engaging with each other. Then I think of like, you know, kids in a, in a, in a kindergarten, you know, playground. Mm. Um, you know, how do we bring connected communication, you know, in a written format where you might not have some of the nuances, you know, that we have when we're talking to somebody face to face? Well, one of the things about that, certainly on forums and so on, public forums, but it happens on Slack as well within companies as well and over email and so on. As soon as it's a screen that I'm typing my words into rather than a person that I'm speaking my words to, for a lot of people, um, the, the, the level of kind of consideration and respect that they show just drops through the floor. I mean, it's quite remarkable. Absolutely. As you've seen. <laughs> and, um, Lots of reasons for that, but one of it, you know, people are on edge often in our societies. They're very hardworking. You look at the stats on how much harder people work now than they did, you know, 10, 20, 30 years ago. People are often pretty frazzled and um, so many things going on. And they, so they feel frustrated. They feel exhausted. They feel um, some underlying anger, you know, that kind of thing sometimes with whatever's happening in their particular line of business. And so a safe place to vent your anger is a very valuable thing. And so an online forum for people seems to be a very safe place to vent their anger, right? It's like, you're not there. You can't pull a gun on me. You can't fire me. You can't, there's nothing you can do apart from like write some caps back at me kind of thing. Um, and of course it ignores the fact that, that that's potentially a permanent record that anyone in the future can look at if they go searching around, you know, if they're thinking of employing you and they see all the caps and they say, all right, we're not hiring this person. They have uncontrolled anger issues or something. Um, but nonetheless, people feel safe as they do it sometimes. And so they do less impulse control. If they were sitting in a room with you, 
they would be way more likely to sort of temper it in most cases, mm-hmm. but, uh, but they don't. Yeah. So, so therefore, what do you do in response is the question that I'm asking that I'm hearing you ask. And, yeah. um, for myself, because I'm a not, not a big user of the forum uh, kind of approach, it's, I'm aware of how difficult it is to communicate through inflated, uh, aroused emotions, you know, anger, frustration, that kind of thing, um, in a written form how time-consuming that is and sometimes how fruitless that is. People just keep on hammering away because, you know, they don't have to change. You know, they don't have to see your point or anything. But for me, on the occasions when I do it, um, I, would, I would do my best to uh, not ignore the caps or whatever or not ignore the kind of vitriolic language and finger-pointing and absolutism like, you know, your point is worthless and I know everything. Um, but more just to sort of use the kind of reflective listening that we've, um, you and I have certainly talked about before, of just like making sure, hey, can I check that I'm understanding? Are you saying this, this, and this? But you can do that in a, in a written form of like, hey, you know, uh, I'm interpreting your caps as being that you'll feel pretty strongly about this, you know, and, and reading the actual content of what you've written, you know, it sounds to me like you don't see any value at all in the argument that whatever it was that you previously said and, and your viewpoint is that, da, 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 you know, so it, not with necessarily exactly the same words, paraphrasing or what it might be, but with this sort of, again, it can be very sincere. It's like, wow, can I seize on this as an opportunity to really test my willingness and ability to comprehend and connect with what someone else is saying, even when I really feel like I totally disagree with everything that they're saying? You know, can I, can I see whether or not they get the impression that I understand them? Because I do, like to some, to some uh, satisfying extent for them, I do understand them. Can I set myself that task? Um, and then their outburst becomes something that's useful. And on some occasions, not all, they, their anger passes and they are kind of amazed by the fact that you're not retaliating and that you're showing this interest and this curiosity. And sometimes, you know, the person happens to be kind of brilliant. And once you can get them to a level of dialogue that's actually considered and reasoned, then you may learn something, you know? Mm -hmm. But if you react to their reactivity, then you learn nothing. The two of you are just now going at it like like stags in the spring or something, you know, two deer who are just locking antlers and trying to win, you know? And that, I don't find that very valuable unless that's your form of fun you know it's not my form of fun no no not mine either and newt i have to give a personal testimonial that i did do that in a i just thought about this when i was talking to um you know a a partner of my business that i was talking to and we went back you know you know you know he doesn't want to get on the phone so it is a very very difficult position to be in where this person for some reason doesn't want to talk doesn't feel safe around talking on the phone uh, but I did kind of engage them and I did use those things you said. I did kind of try to say, so what I'm hearing you say is you want me to go read this book, right? And then you want me to do this thing, right? And that indeed got us to the point that we were now kind of becoming a little bit more vulnerable. And he was saying, well, this is kind of what the issue is, right? I feel like you've got this, um, you know, self-interest that is too blatant. <laughs> I think you need to tone down your self-interest, right? And, and you're right. I did kind of pause, even though I'm like, well, you know, we all have self-interest and I was being more direct and sincere. 
and vulnerable, but he, he's taken that as, you know, I'm just out to get what I want and I'm not really concerned about what he wants, right? So I think uh, that is excellent advice to, to, to simply just recap what someone has said, no matter how, how you know, uh, uh, angry, right, or vitriolic their, their statement might be, just to interrupt your typical response, just to, 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 to meet that with the same. Yeah. And, I, and I did do that, and it did lead to a conversation, right? Even though, because I couldn't have, I mean, obviously, ideally, we would get on the phone and, and hash it out. Um, but this stuff works. This stuff really does work. Um, it, but if you're only, if you're truly pausing to really check in and, and realize, that, you know what, I've been this person at some point. Yeah. I've, I've been there before. So if I'm going to try to resolve this, then I really have to, you know, check in with them. Is this what you're saying? Yeah. It doesn't matter, you know, uh, I don't agree with it initially. But then if you do kind of like do that, they start to to really get away from the, the bashing and all like, this is kind of what I'm feeling. So I'm, I'm kind of really upset that, you know, yeah. you, you're not, you don't care about me and what, I'm, what I need out of the yeah. situation. So that's pretty powerful. And I do want to just highlight that the thing you're describing uh, where you you could retaliate in exactly the way they're coming at you. And you, you know from having been alive for as long as you've been alive, like by the time any of us are 10 years old, we know how to create conflicts and we have a good idea of what makes them worse and what actually starts to resolve them actually. Whether or not we ever consciously notice that we know that is a separate point, but the point is that we do kind of know it on some level. We just need someone to remind us of it or point it out and we go, oh yeah, that's true. And so you know where it's going to go if you retaliate almost certainly you've been through that routine. Um, and so there's a thing that happens where as you start to move into whatever it is a position of leadership where you're trying to be um, really considered in how you do that and yes have both decisiveness and humility it's not an either or mm -hmm. then there's this thing that happens where the juggernaut is trying to carry you in the direction of retaliation whatever you've done more frequently in your life will be the way that you are moved to react, you know? Okay. So okay. someone says something to you about critical of you and you're like, that's BS and you know, you're ready to do that kind of thing. It's in you, you can feel it coming. And there's this moment that I remember very well as I started to learn this work, where before it's quite out of your mouth, this, the typical reaction, before it's quite out, you suddenly remember, I have a choice. I don't actually have to follow through with the words which are coming. Sometimes they can even be out of your mouth already. You can be like, you know what? I'll tell you, and you're sort of about to launch into something, and then it comes in, you have a choice. It's, still, it's not too late. Mm. And you can be like, you know what? I'll tell you, uh, actually, just a minute. Let me, before I tell you anything, yeah. let me just check that I'm understanding what you're saying. And literally, it looks kind of strange in the moment as people are learning this and getting their heads around it, but... Yeah, you can do that. And, uh, and it feels really very much like you're um, taking control of yourself and taking control of your life. And it feels so much more, um, more enjoyable, so much better inside than just being kind of like swept up by the energy of, of, of fight, of angry expression, of, you know, following the routine uh, that's such a popular routine amongst the human tribe. Mm -hmm. So, yeah. It feels good and it's well worth it, but it does take real, you know, <sighs> taking a breath and pausing and redirecting yourself in some way.
Yeah. Do Do you think uh, a mindfulness practice can help with this, Newt? Definitely. Yeah. Yeah, because I find that uh, there's a couple times I remember, you know, literally feeling this <laughs> wave of just, you know, anger because this person was was being difficult at the bank. It, was, you know, it, was, I, I, it really ever happens to me, but I remember being at the bank and this person was making me do something redundant. <laughs> and, I was, and I remember just having this wave of arousal coming over me and uh, being highly aware that this was happening, right? And then kind of, kind of what you said, kind of catching myself in the act yeah. and, and reorienting. You know, this person trying to do their, they're trying to do their job. Right, you know, yeah. on a bad day, something's going on, and and me attacking them is really not going to make anything any better. <laughs> so, right, it's only going to get things worse, and maybe they might fudge something in my account <laughs> and end up having problems. Um, you know, so so this kind of makes me also wonder, Newt, as as I was in your workshop, and there was a a lady who gave uh, a couple of two different ways of saying something. You know, about, you know, the partner was maybe like angry and they're kind of stunned like this. And then she gave two different ways of, of, of uh, you know, connecting her needs, what, what, you know, and obviously we're skipping over some of what you do, but, you know, feelings and needs works way better than, than blaming and attacking. Uh, so, you know, she spoke honestly, Newt. She had, it sounded, it sounded very intuitive how she was talking about her needs and feelings, right? It, it seemed to me like she has done work. I think you guys were at a workshop together or something like that. Is there some sort of certific, uh, of, uh, of evaluation that we can put people in the categories, right? This person is, doesn't know what connected communication is. This person is new, right? 10 years deep. You've been doing this for a long time, right? You do this intuitively without thinking. Is there some kind of rubric out there that people can use to self-assess and see where they are the ability to speak connectedly to communicate empathetically and we can have this framework out there that people can kind of you know can, can you know can carry a grade like you know have the, the mbti which you know introvert whatever no yeah is there something like this and if not is somebody working on it yeah i i hope that someone's working on it um one of the very early um regulars at the communication dojo workshop that you've come to um said to me you know i think it'd be great if you had a self-assessment tool for people when they first come in so they can kind of assess where they're at and then you know after a few classes they can do it again and see and uh, i said you know what that's a great idea <laughs> and, it, and i put it on the to-do list which already had quite a lot of things on it and um so that two and a half years went by or more and uh, that self-assessment tool didn't get created but um but I certainly think there are there are some simple things which would go into it or will go into it when I create it. Or if someone else has created it, these things might be in there. Mm -hmm. You can just ask yourself questions like, uh, uh, how frequently have people said to me in my life, you're not listening to me? Because if it was just one person on one occasion, then maybe that person was, you know, having a bad day or something like that. But if that person said it to you on a regular basis and other people have said it to you too, uh -huh. there's probably quite a strong chance that you're frequently not really listening to people. You think that you are, but they don't think that you are. They don't have the experience of being heard, the experience of being understood, um, the experience of empathy. They don't have that. So even though you think you're giving it, you're not, right? Um, so that's one quick self-assessment there. And another one is um, a question like, 
there's a few others that I like, like, um, do I ever um, feel grateful to someone, but not tell them? Um, you know, or how frequently is that the case? You know, something like that. That gives you an indicator sometimes. If you're never telling people that you're grateful to them, that's a block of, in your communication, you know. And another one might be, uh, when I become angry, what do I do? And if the answer is that I go into finger pointing language, right, wrong thinking, here's what's wrong with you, judgment, blame, criticism, demands, threats, um, and also raising my voice and adopting a more aggressive stance, like any of those things, if the answer is that, or if the answer is I shut down and I, I stop talking about the thing and I never come back to that topic ever again if I can avoid it, you know? Either of those are indicators of the fact that there's a fairly sizable hole in your communication skills because you don't have to do either of those. I mean, you might do them and realize you're doing them, but then if you're taking communication seriously, you learn from, you say, why did I shut down and refuse to speak about it? Why did I um, start expressing my anger in ways which were very vitriolic or, or, or aggressive or something towards the other person. What was I hoping to get by doing that? What was I hoping to get by shutting down and refusing to talk about it? What's the motivation that was going on for me? You mentioned before feelings and needs. Well, my feeling was anger, but what was motivating me to express my anger in the way that I did, that kind of thing. So that's another self-assessment question, which is useful, I think. You know, If you're doing either of those two things and not afterwards really looking at them to understand why you did that or if those things are just your habit that you always do you always shut down or you always go into fight mode then there's just a big hole you know it's as simple as that just like if you if you you learn to drive a car but no one ever taught you how to reverse you know you're going to find yourself running into all sorts of difficulties especially if you live in a city um and you might be like i don't know what's wrong with this car i don't know what's wrong with this city i don't know what's wrong with all these other people you know well Try learning to reverse the car and then you'll find that all sorts of other things become available to you kind of thing. Yeah. So it's like that, you know, it's just skills that no one taught you and you're not aware of them. And just to tell you a quick little story about that, the car and the reversing car, you know, sometimes it could be a little blind spot, you know, literally I was in, I was in Spain in Barcelona and I had this little Fiat, right? So I was pretty excited about it, right? So I go in to park the car, right? And I'm trying to go into reverse and it's not going in a reverse. You know, I do everything in my, you know, it's, it's a manual shift, right? Not, not I know how to do manuals. So I go backwards, right backwards. I do all the combinations and the car just goes forward. There's no reverse, right? So I'm, I'm in there literally, I'm getting angry now. I'm getting frustrated. Like, how is it possible that this car doesn't have a reverse function? And I know it does, but it's not visible. It's not clear. It's not all explained to me until I realized that what I had to do was literally pull up the gear shift. Mm -hmm. And then you can get to the reverse function, right? Yeah, so, yeah. And there's no way to, to do this either to know about it, you know, go to the man, right. look it up or ask somebody about it, right? Right, right. But I'm just sitting there stewing in this like, you know, frustration and helplessness um, that they didn't clearly explain how to get this car in reverse. So yeah. not having those skills can, can lead, you know, with us really spinning our wheels I think, in, in many situations. Yeah, and like you say, it was just this one small thing, but you didn't know it. And meanwhile, you just start, fireworks start going off, you know. It's understandable, it's just a human function. But um, for me, I would then want to look at, 
not everyone would have gone got that furious. Some people would have been very methodical and, you know, kind of gone out and done some sign language to a local person and managed to communicate it. And the local person would have just lifted up the gear shift and pulled it. Like a different person would have handled it in a different way. So why is it that I handled it this way rather than that way? You know, I'm curious about that. I want, is this something I can learn? Is this something that I can change? It's part of that thing that I think we've talked about before as well. Like there's the, uh, the fixed mentality, I am as I am and there's no changing me, I cannot learn, I cannot grow. Something that I don't know today, I will never know, that kind of idea. It's lucky that none of us had that attitude as babies, otherwise we'd never learn to walk, right? <laughs> but, um, but sometimes as adults, people have developed that attitude and then it's like anything that anyone ever asks of us that we don't already know how to do, we can get really angry rather than thinking, okay, I, just saying to them, I don't actually know how to do the thing that you're asking me, how to, asking me to do right now. Mm-hmm. Um, I would like to learn, mm-hmm. you know? So let's talk about that or something. It's such a different attitude, really, that, to realize there's always a ton that you don't know yet, and that will remain true for as long as you're alive. Um, so anything you can do to work on that kind of growth mindset, I think, and allowing for the possibility of learning more and increasing your skills you know that's what i recommend to people that i coach absolutely and then you know asking for help newt i'm realizing is not something which is intuitive to us as humans we tend to really avoid that as much as we can and i've seen this in myself literally at at the event that you and i uh were collaborating on you know i was i found myself to be the moderator and also trying to man the recording that was happening on a couple of devices and, and it's only post event. I'm like, wait a minute, why didn't I just, there was people there that I know well, they're my friends mm-hmm. who were in the audience. And I could, all I did was just say, Alex, could you please come here and you know, make sure that you're, ca- you know, follow me around with the camera or do these things, you know, um, as you watch the, the, the show. Right. And it just didn't hit me until looking at the footage i'm like man you know, the, you know these scenes are not complete or the camera was focused on this scene but not that scene i was trying to do these things myself and then i think about you know literally my my uh my wedding ceremony i was late to to the party because i wanted to return this truck that i had rented to to move some things to the venue so i'm like I could have easily asked someone to take care of that. So I'm seeing a pattern here. This where, is your wedding ceremony? Yes. I was late to yeah. the, after, the after party. I was there like, the people almost left. A bunch of people left actually because I was like two hours late. Yeah, so yeah. To take care of the, like you said, you know, if you're a certain kind of person, you want to get, get things done. Right. But I think now there's a deeper element of, you know, hesitating to reach out to help, right? Yeah. That's something which I see clearly in others, but it's only now that I see it in myself. Oh, yeah. um, so I'm wondering, you know, what is, what is a way to get better at doing this, right? To, to be, a, become aware and then what things, what steps can we take to get better at organically asking for help? Well, obviously the first step is to come to my four week series in, in San Francisco on asking for what you want and dealing with that, the answer no or and giving the answer no to other people's requests when that's your honest answer, you know, and that is uh, September 6th. Okay. And what's the um, venue? What's the location, uh, Newt, that people can uh, come to you for this? What's, is you it- can find it all at communicationdojo.com. And uh, the venue is the San Francisco Zen Center Conference Room. Wow. Um, so, but the point that I'm bringing up is as long as being, you know, uh, self promoting, taking a moment of self promotion, 
But the reason I mention it is because what's coming into mind is one of the things that we do there, of course, given that we're talking about just what you're talking about, asking for what you want, including help, right? People are not only are resistant to ask for help, they're resistant to ask for anything a lot of the time. And with perfectly good reason. So one of the first things we do in that course is say to the room of people, okay, um, let's hear what are the reasons why you don't ask for things? What stops you? And we can fill a big whiteboard very quickly with all the different reasons that people come up with for why they don't ask for things. And um, you know, you could easily come up with a bunch of them for yourself, no, no question, right? But um, like, I, like if we look at your situation the other night, um, I could have asked for it. I didn't think of it in the time. Yeah, that's true. Or I could have asked for it. I'm not in the habit of doing that, so that's not where I go. I go to, I can, I'm capable, I can handle everything. I can get married and return a truck all at the same time. Um, so there's a certain self-esteem aspect in there, you know, of your, your identity is of a doer, a capable person, so therefore you're going to uh, be reinforcing that. Um, people will think less of me if I ask. Uh, I don't want to owe people something. You know, it goes on and on. The list of reasons why people don't ask for help is, is, uh, is long yeah. and, and ask for help or ask for other things. Um, so awareness, like with so many things, is a first step, right? When you're kind of like, oh my goodness, I've never thought about that before, but I have this whole different list of reasons why I don't ask for things. And now that I know what they are, when, when I'm in a situation and I'm feeling stress, right? That's all you need to be able to notice is like, I'm breathing more heavily, I'm moving more quickly, I'm speaking more quickly, like there's all these signals, my face is feeling hot, whatever. There's different signals for different people. My fists are starting to clench, my shoulders are going up around my ears. There's all sorts of ways in the body and the face and the voice and everything where you can kind of be like, oh, I'm getting worked up here. I'm getting like a feeling of huge urgency and rush, you know? And so that then becomes the flag. And it's just sort of a flag waving saying, so would you like to get some support with what you're doing? You know, that can become this little internal question. I'm all frenzied and worked up. Is there anyone who can help me in some way? Right? And I'm the same, by the way. Like, I mean, it's not my natural way at all. I, I identified as a child as being like an island of one. You know, that thing of no man is an island. Well, I was three years old. I've not heard that yet. Um, so I was trying to be an island, you know, like I don't need anyone's help. I don't, and th there's reasons for that in my history, right? Um, but, but it meant that that's, that's a lot of uh, training that I needed to undo in a certain sense as an adult. And now, thankfully, you know, uh, my partner, if she sees me getting like really under the gun on a deadline for something, she'll say, is there anything that I can do which reminds me of her as being a resource you know for various things that she has skills in um and which let's face it sometimes might be oh it would be awesome if you could get the dinner or if you can make the dinner that's sometimes on other occasions it's like oh, it would be awesome if you could proofread this 17 page document that i've read you know and tell me all the places where i haven't put commas that traditionally we would put commas um so that's helped me to now just sort of realize like oh yeah that's an issue that i've got um, and there are people around. She's not the only person around where I can reach out for support. And so you just take those, you're a baby again. You're, you're taking your first little tentative steps. You know, you were crawling, but now you're standing up. You're, you're asking for help for the first time. And now you're asking for help for the second time. And you're sort of starting to get the hang of it. Um, and let's face it, 
in the position that you're in, leading your own organization, the bigger it gets, the more delegation needs to be happening. You know? exactly. Exactly. Even things you have time for today, if the, if the company gets big enough, you won't have time for those anymore. Mm-hmm. It's just mm-hmm. no, no, no longer possible. So things you were enjoying and not wanting to delegate, now you've either got to step down from being the CEO so you can do those things, or you've got to delegate those things to someone else. So it's pretty important to develop it as a skill, isn't it? Exactly, exactly. And, and then, of course, to be, to be comfortable hearing no, because unfortunately, you know, that is a reality of life, right? A lot of times we are not going to be able to uh, get the answer that we want. And then I think how we deal with that in many ways, I think, kind of like shapes our lives, right? Because where somebody got five no's and gave up, somebody went on to get a hundred other no's and then got a million dollars, right? Sure. Big yeah. deal, big deal. So yeah. how do you, you know, uh, in a nutshell, obviously you, you've got this great um, event. Um, how, how do we best deal with the fact that we're, we're going to hear now, there's going to be rejection. Uh, how do we work with this? Uh, I think one of the, there's a few different powerful things that I learned, you know, the, the founder of the Center for Nonviolent Communication, um, it was Marshall Rosenberg, no longer alive, but a, a great teacher of communication, and I learned a lot from him. And um, it was from him first that I, I learned, well, anytime anyone says no, they are saying yes to something else. Mm. And so it's easy to only notice the no, like, oh, they're saying no to me, and that's just filling my whole awareness. But you can train yourself to be like, okay, they're saying yes to something else. I wonder what the something else is. And like, you maybe just kind of would say to them, oh, well, that's cool, yeah, I'll ask someone else. And it might be very quick and easy like that. And you're thinking, yeah, they're saying yes to something else when they're saying no to me, but I don't need to know about it. Whereas on other occasions, it might be really of interest to you to find out. You know, like, um, I'm just, and the way you might say it is like, um, well, I'm curious, like, what is it that you, actually would enjoy doing this thing to help me out, but that is something else getting in the way or you're, you're scheduled already or something like that. Because the reason I'm asking is just that if you are, you know, theoretically enthusiastic about helping me out, but there's just some kind of obstacles or something, I figure we might be able to kind of rearrange some things so that you can help me out, you know? But if it's just that you don't want to, then that's great too, but at least I've found out, you know? And that simple thing, sometimes people are scared it will appear pushy or something like that, but for me, um, when you realize that people actually love to contribute positively to other people, they really do. And I understand there are people out there who are just like uh, living in ways which seem to be all about themselves, but there's a hole in them that never gets filled because they never feel like they're really making a positive contribution to others. And it's, you know, that's a hard place to be. And hopefully they lift themselves out of that eventually. But most people are really aware of how joyful it is for them to give to someone else without any kind of bargain going on. And I'm not giving to you because I want something back. I'm just enjoying giving to you in some way, my attention, my help, my, my jokes, my whatever it is. Right. Mm-hmm. So if you simply hear a person's no as being like, oh, all right, well, that's the end of the conversation then. You might be robbing them of an opportunity to really give to you. They might be really bummed out that they've got to say no. You're like, hey, could you help me to move house on on uh, Saturday or something? They're like, sorry, man, I got something on already. 
And, uh, and they're really un sad about it. They'd love to be part of that transition for you from one property to another or to, to be part of that day, you know, and, and also be supporting. And if you just say nothing and go, oh, all right, well, sorry about that. I'll ask some other people. You've robbed them of an opportunity to give to you, in fact. Whereas if you say, oh, what are you, what are you up to on Saturday? And then they say to you, oh, did you say Saturday? I thought you said Sunday. No, I said Saturday. Oh, I'm totally available on Saturday. You know, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. and just that one little thing of being curious opens up possibilities. I'm giving a very simple example, but I think it's more complicated than that. But nonetheless, the fact that you would love for them to have that opportunity, if they would love to have it, put your heads together and suddenly it becomes possible, right? You must have seen this in real life, I'm sure, to start your own company. You know, you've had to overcome some obstacles here and there. And, yeah. So anyway, those are a few thoughts that I have about it, how to how to handle no's in a way that's more uh, easy on the person, easy on the soul or whatever. Absolutely, I love that. And uh, I just had a meeting recently with somebody who I was you know, courting as a potential partner. And it seemed like they were not open to maybe working together at the moment, right? But they did offer other ways they were willing to help out. Yeah. Right? So I think, we tend to focus so much on what we wanted or how the way that we are seeing them contributing that it blinds us, like you said, from these other things that they could be willing to offer very freely, very comfortably, mm -hmm. right? So that's a really great point. Um, so Neil, I'm kind of curious about you as a person, you know, like, you know, what gets you going? Like, what excites you? What excites Newt Bailey, uh, the guy behind the, the dojo and, and all mm -hmm. the great, you know, tactics and ways of communicating better? Well, I, um, you know, I've got, I've got things, you know, I could list, I used to be a rock climber in Yosemite. That was a big thing of mine for, for some years. Uh, I don't do that anymore. I, I've done a lot of um, going to festivals and really enjoying part of the color and the spectacle and, and, you know, dancing and all this kind of stuff. A lot of that has been fun for me in my life. Did um, you go to Burning Man at all? Have you been to Burning Man? Uh, only 12 years have I spent at Burning Man, yeah. Really? 12 years? Yeah. 12 times? 12 times, yeah. Wow, that is pretty, yeah. I just went last year for the first time and what a what a great experiment, right? In, in human connectivity and, and, and engagement. Yeah. Amazing. Yeah. Okay, so you've done the whole festival bit. Done the bit, yeah. And, and, you know, the things like just love riding my bike around the city, love uh, going for hikes in the woods, that kind of thing. Uh -huh. And there's a, there's a, you know, and just a thing of uh, hanging out with friends, you know, playing board games or, you know, hanging out with my girlfriend and, and swimming in a river or something like that. All, the, all those great things. Being in nature is huge for me. Play is huge for me, um, whether it's a board game or, a, or a, you know, a game in the park or a frisbee or whatever it is. Um, I think those are crucial for a life uh, well lived. And I, and I more recently have, um, you know, picked up some uh, drumming classes and stuff years ago and done quite a lot of that over the years and now learning guitar, you know, so just rather than, I love music, I love listening to other people's music and more recently I've realized like, oh, I can actually have a good time and contribute to other people's good time by um, learning a little bit about making music and not making it something that only the pop stars do, you know, and the people who I think of as being natural talents, like there's room for me too in that whole world, you know. And I know there are lots of countries still where everyone's a musician. Hmm. Uh, I've been told there are countries like that where everyone's a dancer or a musician or a drummer or whatever. Like, 
Um, it's not just left up to the few uh, stars, and so I prefer that. But then the, the last thing that comes to mind immediately is um, that my work and my, and my passion in life are very closely aligned because what I most love is to be in environments where people are learning ever more to tell the truth um, and to tell the truth about themselves to themselves like am I scared right now am I excited right now am I am I questioning the relationship that I'm in do I feel like my time at this job is, is either coming to a close or I really need to be promoted into a different position you know just whatever's true um, do I feel uh, inferior to people? Do I feel superior to people? You know, am I uh, am I jealous? Am I, you know, whatever it might be. Um, I love to be around people who are learning to tell the truth, even if it's not, if it doesn't feel all that pretty to them, even if it doesn't feel very uh, attractive, you know, to me and to plenty of other people too, the most attractive thing you can do is tell the truth about yourself, you know. And um, so I love to be in those environments. And of course, the work that I do is really helping people with that as part of skillful communication. You know, life is often easier if you're just honest because you're not having to kind of maintain a web of lies and fictions. Um, so yeah, that's that's something that I really enjoy also in both in work and in my life in general. I love that. And, and you know, when you said that living your truth immediately, I thought about this movie I just watched recently called Coco. Have you heard about Coco? Oh yeah, I love that movie. <laughs> right, right? Yeah. You know, this, this marrying what your environment wants you to do or behave like, right? Music is bad, you know, I love music. And, try, you know, and, and sticking up for what you truly are and believe in, I think is something that, you know, we can all do better at, right? You know, making that ask that, yeah. you know, you're hesitating to, to do. Uh, so what last you know couple movies you saw recently that really grabbed your attention besides coco anything that you've seen that, that you really liked <clears throat> um my mind is going completely blank at this moment <laughs> but i i do on occasion uh, when i'm feeling tired slip into um uh, binging on netflix or amazon prime or something and not always particularly great movies i have to say <laughs> Or, or a um, series. It could be a series. It could be something that... could be a series. Yeah, yeah, that you really, really liked. Well, there are various documentaries that I've watched recently. I just watched a documentary about Putin, actually. <laughs> it was a BBC documentary on YouTube, and I, I grew up, a lot of my education really came from BBC documentaries and Channel 4 documentaries in Britain. And, um, and so, you know, I think that kind of thing... I enjoyed that particular one. It's kind of frightening, but uh, I enjoyed it. And um, I love watching, I just recently uh, went through a spate of watching uh, movies about the making of other movies. Ooh. So just like the various movies that I've enjoyed uh -huh. um, and then watching the making of and listening to the director speaking and the, and the actors and so on, the writers. And I similarly have watched a lot of movies, uh, documentaries about bands, different bands that I've liked, you know, including the big names, the Beatles and the Stones, people like that, but also a lot of other bands. And just, just kind of seeing like what goes into the success and what leads sometimes to the unfortunate fall for people um, when they fall into 
drug addiction or other things. Um, and the, the thing which really has come out of that for me to a large extent is just how much work the people who really succeed, they, they generally really work super hard. Even if they have this image of being kind of like Keith Richard in the Stones or something like just sort of drugs and, you know, rock and roll, or whatever. But when you hear about what he did, apparently like if he was awake, he had a guitar in his hand, basically. Um, if, he was, if he had the capacity to actually do anything with a car and guitar, yeah. then there was, that's what he was doing, you know? And the same is true about all these different artists in different uh, realms. So um, I like that both because it's fun to see, to the extent that you are seeing the human side of these people versus some, you know, continued fiction that they're putting on for the documentary filmmaker that's not really <laughs> them either. But, uh, but sometimes I get the feel I'm actually hearing from the real person. And, um, and I, I just feel encouraged that, yeah, you know, like you said, you might ask five times and get five no's. Um, you might ask of life five times and, and feel that you're getting no's from the world around you, you know, your community, from the universe, whatever. But, um, but it's always when you wake up in the morning, it's a new day and uh, there's an opportunity to, to do this day differently than you did the previous one, you know, and to keep on being guided by whatever you're most um, enthusiastic about. Exactly. That's, that's yeah. what I see in those things. And then there's a Japanese word uh, that keeps coming up more frequently, and it's the word ikigai. Can we come across this? Right? It's kind of I where have, but I can't remember it. It's where your passion aligns with your skills and your goals in life. So you've got, oh, yeah. you've got something you're passionate about, something you're good at, right? Um, and something you're uh, you want to accomplish a specific goal. So when all those three come together, right, then you're living in your ikigai. So like you, for yeah. example, right, you said you're passionate for people and, and helping them get to where they want to be. You know, you are doing this work of communication um, and, and leads me to the, the question I have in my mind is, you know, where does Newt want to go next, right? Newt is an incredible facilitator with a great workshop, which is always packed. You know, whenever I go there, it's full of people. I'm sure a lot of these people will come to you for coaching and, and other things. Um, it's a two-part question, right? Number one, who do you like working with? Who are some of the people that are a good fit for you to work with? And how does that look like? And then also, what's Newt's larger vision for the work you're doing now? And what other things are you trying to accomplish? You know, uh, Elon wants us to go to Mars. And I feel like the current companies is doing, it's a way to end up going to Mars. Uh, my company right now, as it is, you know, I, I enjoy it, I love it. But I feel like it's also a stepping stone to a media, uh, you know, type of a, a, a adventure, right? Because I really enjoy doing this, talking to you, you know, extracting all these, you know, things I would have never learned otherwise. Uh, and other people that have had the chance to interview as well. So I'm curious to know, what about Newt? You know, who do you want to work with right now? And then also, where do you want this to go um, down the line? Well, the two areas I really enjoy, the leading public workshops um, is really enjoyable for me. Uh, the, the communication dojo workshops are really enjoyable for me, both in, in whatever formats I'm doing. And I am, uh, I have a vision to expand that offering online so as to make it so that uh, way more people can hear my particular way of talking about communication. 
Um, I also would love to get the, the, the Monday evening model kind of um, reproducible. There are a couple of people apprenticing with me at the moment, for example, and I love the idea that someone, I'm constantly being asked, do you do workshops in the East Bay, you know, Oakland, Berkeley? And I rarely do now, I used to, but I don't tend to go over there. But wouldn't it be awesome if someone else just, um, if I had confidence in them that they could pick up the particular way that I do the Monday Evening Communication Dojo and they set it up in any number of other cities. And San Mateo, have... San Mateo, right? you know, we produce on San Mateo, exactly. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so I like that idea of it's just spreading and, and going out, because I call it Communication Dojo, you know, like an Aikido Dojo or something. And, you know, any teacher of Aikido, if they have the skills and so on, can go and open up a dojo in some other town, right? And that has happened. There didn't used to be any dojos in, in America, and now there's lots of dojos, same uh, yoga studios. Mm -hmm. So I love the idea of it, of it um, spreading more and more, which is happening within the nonviolent communication uh, community in general, but I also specifically like the idea of my, my particular flavor, my particular way of doing things, uh, making it out more and more. So that's one side that I'm, and, uh, very enthusiastic about and the other side of things that I'm very enthusiastic about is the the reinventing of organizations the reinventing of how uh, businesses are governed and run and the book reinventing organizations uh, is is uh, one that I've enjoyed uh, reading half of I'm still reading it um, and the whole kind of movement of conscious capitalism you know just changing the whole uh, consciousness and attitude behind business um, because it seems like many businesses actually adopt a much more conscious i.e much more caring for humanity and for the planet and for the other creatures and uh, and so on that live on the planet um, they're turning a bigger profit you know the companies that are actually doing that are finding that it's also better for business too um, less staff turnover and less um, uh, days lost to conflict between people and management uh, uh, debacles and all this kind of thing. So I'm very enthusiastic about the speakers and writers who are in that uh, realm. And um, I, I already go into organizations and I'm, I'm increasingly uh, in dialogue with people about, about that sort of future for business, really, um, making it so that business is much more uh, human, yeah. in terms of how we treat each other and not human on the level of human violence but human on the level of humane i guess um and yeah having that be the new way forward really and i feel like it's essential and i would love to see it start to happen and be part of that so um, that's a passion that i'm really moving in the direction of i like that and i'm wondering also do you see a way to improve connectedness when people are working remotely. I'm, I'm finding that, um, you know, teams are working remotely. A lot of them live in, like I said, tools like Slack, which are text-based. Um, you know, I was talking to a, a QA engineer on an interview like this, and he said that one of the team members was in a different city. So the core group was here in San Francisco. This guy's in Michigan or something by himself. Well, what they did, which really blew my mind, is they had a camera, okay? trained on the San Francisco team and trained on the guy in, in Michigan. And they were literally able to see each other as they work. So you have a screen here where you can uh -huh. turn and talk to this person. And then, you know, it's literally real time without the physical location. Yeah. So I've got a team also, you know, in the Philippines that I work with, and it's only rarely that we do a video call here and there 
right? But mostly we were on the phone, you know, we we're doing uh, Slack. So I'm wondering how cool would it be to have a, a screen where I can look and there, there's Marion. I can see Marion working. We can kind of engage because obviously it's a privacy concern. Wondering what you think about that. You know, is this the future of, of work where <laughs> people are kind of like, you know, have telepresence? Um, you know, those robots now, I believe you can purchase where, you know, you can be the boss and kind of walk around on a little screen and, <laughs> and talk to people. Oh, really? You know, yeah, in a big call center. Yeah. But, ro oh. ro robo boss. Robo boss. <laughs> you know, with, that, with the visual, the face, you know, you can have that video conversation in a physical setting as opposed to just having to go to your screen. What do you think of these tools? Well, certainly uh, it's not saying anything particularly revolutionary to say that dis uh, distributed teams seems to be the way of the future, right? It's like, that's what's happening. You, you find the talent where you can find it. And if it's not local talent, then you, you go elsewhere. And that's what all these different companies are doing. Oh, wow. um, and then I've never heard of the idea of like actually having a camera set up permanently to allow you to feel like the person's there. Yeah. Um, but uh, yeah, that, that's, it's, as soon as you say it, it's not surprising and the and people who are working in in the tech sector it's like there's going to be all sorts of ideas coming up for that i'm sure you know different apps and different things that allow people to feel more connected on a on a sort of minute by minute basis not just in the weekly meetings or that you know every quarter there's a there's an on-site where you bring in all the team from around the world and they come to san francisco or something um that's great, but yeah, what you're describing uh, takes it all to a whole different level. How do you feel? time zones which get in their way, but still. That's right. That's right. Um, how do you feel about that? You know, having a camera monitoring you as you work with people. Let's say you had a you know a gig and there were some folks. Does that sound a little bit like like creepy slash offsetting <laughs> to have this knowing that I am currently being visible to others? For me, part of me is like. I, I like the accountability that it brings, right? That, you know, you're kind of like, you know, it's like there's someone else there without there necessarily being someone else. Like one, one time somebody was in the office and they forgot that the other person was, uh, was the camera was on, right? And I had this like moment of like, um, you know, uh, disconcerted, you know, surprise, right? Yeah. But also it does bring that accountability, I think. But what do you think? I mean, could you think you could kind of settle into that where, you know that you know your team members are 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 there watching you, or does that sound like it's a little bit uncomfortable? Well, I just look to uh, as a first starting point with something like that. I just look to what's the current working circumstance of 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 the people themselves. Like if if there are a number of people in the Philippines working and they're all in an office together. Is any one of them permanently turned towards the other staring at them? You know, like, is there someone, or is you're typing on your keyboard, there's someone who's just staring at you the whole time, but you don't know when their eyes are open and when their eyes are closed, you know, you'd still be a little bit like you'd be checking. And if now they have some magical thing where their eyes are always open, but you don't know whether or not they're actually attached to their brain or not, you'd be kind of like, this is very off putting, you know, like, I don't even know when I'm being watched. <laughs> so I can imagine privacy would be a major issue for that. Whereas people who work in big open plan offices, I go into some places where, um, you know, the 
uh, employees a, a very much an open plan, really. There might sometimes be a low wall between them and the person across the desk from them, but everyone down here, there's no wall. You know, it's just people online. And in some cases, there's no wall at all. Like literally, your computer's here, and that's the only barrier between you and the person who's looking the other way is the fact that you've got computer screens there. And so then, of course, you can look around and see 20 people, you know? And, yeah. he, and you might even be able to see that that one's surfing Facebook and that one's surfing, you know, some LinkedIn or something rather than doing their work in that moment, perhaps. So yeah. there's some, so there's an accountability that's built in there, but it's not the same as what you're describing where suddenly you can like zoom in on any given individual and actually look at exactly what they're doing in that moment. I kind of, um, that, I don't think that would work for me very well, even though I'm not surfing Facebook all the time, but, uh, but still, I don't think it would work. But you know what? You'll find out if you implement it, right? <laughs> yeah, we'll see how it goes. Uh, Newton, what do you like to eat? What kind of, what kind of foods uh, do you find yourself uh, going back to over and over again? Vegetables. <sighs> okay. <laughs> <laughs> That's what I cook mainly is vegetables. I eat meat when I'm out and about, but I don't tend to cook a lot of meat myself. Got it. Any, any, any restaurants you uh, really like in San Francisco? Yes, the Taqueria Buen Sabor at 18th and Valencia, which is um, very, very close to my house. Okay. Um, yeah, I like Udupi Palace. In, in, I like a variety of sushi restaurants around and about. Mm -hmm. yeah. Fabulous, fabulous. Um, Newt, um, what are some... Give me, give me three people that you would love to get a meeting with, if you could, um, this year. If I could, if I could arrange for you an interview with any three people in the world. Um, you know, that you admire, that you find to be fascinating, uh, who would you want me to line up and, and get you uh, to sit down with? Um, well, can't be sure till you've met people, right? But uh, I, I really uh, am a big fan of the American singer-songwriter Tom Waits, and so I'd probably really enjoy uh, just sitting down for dinner with him and hearing stories you know okay. okay um and wow these are they're so interesting these questions you know for a moment they just <laughs> leave me completely like, oh, I, I don't know if it's a good sign i'm not wishing it could be living or dead i'm gonna open it up now now we've got anybody in history that you could you could sit down with and, and have that conversation kind of pick their brains a little bit so we've got tom um, tom waits Yes, Tom Waits. Mm -hmm. um, I'm just trying to, oh, you know, the, uh, who's the dude who was in the original Ghostbusters movie? Dan Aykroyd. Um, the other one. Kind of the, He's such a big actor, but his name is eluding me at this precise moment. Are you looking it up? Yeah, go. We have the internet. We don't have to use our brains. I, I know, I know. How do you feel about that, by the way? That we are slowly outsourcing our um, our brains. Bill Murray. Bill Murray, Dan Aykroyd, Harold. Bill Rand. Murray. Bill Murray. Okay. Is this still yes. around? He's still with us, right? Did he pass? He's still with us, and I, and I think he's a funny guy, and I hear, I hear great things about, um, you know, how much people laugh when they're around him. Uh -huh. um, so, yeah, I think I think he's another one. And um, I don't know, but maybe uh, there's a band from the 70s and 80s 
um, called Talking Heads, and their lead singer is uh, David Byrne, who's still alive. I don't, yes. I don't think Talking Heads yes. are still around, but he's uh-huh. still around. And um, he just always struck me as a, a pretty interesting guy in terms of how he looks at the world. So those are, those are a few that spring to mind there. Uh, I'm sure there'll be many more. They'll, I'll have another three that come to mind as soon as I get off the interview. Like, oh, no, those are the best. <laughs> exactly, exactly. Uh, I think, yeah, I keep thinking about Reckoner. There's a song. He had a band, right? Uh, David Byrne um, yeah. had a band recently. That and he, I think he uh, he re- Radiohead isn't that David Byrne still? Radiohead? No, I I don't think David Byrne was ever in Radiohead. Okay, I think about think about Tom York. I think Tom York exactly. Yeah, he was the lead singer of Radiohead. That's what I'm thinking about. Cool. He's the lead singer. Awesome, awesome. Um, and uh, when it comes to travel, what's what's next? What 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 are the destinations that are are now kind of like on your mind and kind of maybe having your bucket list? This one, this one, my girlfriend asked me recently, so I have actually run this particular question through my mind relatively recently. Okay. I, I would like to go to New Zealand um, and run around all that landscape where they filmed the, the, the uh, Lord of the Rings movies. Okay. Okay. It looks beautiful and I hear such great things about uh, okay. New Zealand. I think uh, India, I suspect India is on the cards for me at some point, although I always have the suspicion that it's going to involve doing some work maybe some workshops or something, but also time, which is not work. So, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, and we were just talking the other day about maybe going to Northern India where it gets more mountainous. Um, I don't know the geography very well of India, but that's the place which appeals to me. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, where else? Oh, I've never been to Japan. And I, I had a lot of fascination with Japan as a, as a child. Mm-hmm. And, um, I've read things written by people who emigrated from England to Japan and said, it's remarkably similar. <laughs> Somehow. They're both kind of island nations, you know, and there's a lot of similarity, actually. Yeah. So I think I would enjoy going there, too. I love Japanese food also. Absolutely. Um, so those are a few places that spring to mind. And um, given that where I live in California, I, I guess having lived here for 21 years, it would be good to finally make it to Mexico um place <laughs> i'd love to go but have never actually gone so so interesting uh yeah. where have you gone that has really left an impression on you what, what places have you traveled to that really left you with a certain awe or sense of uh you know joy or just you know what places have enriched your life that you've been to that are super interesting outside of the united states well it's funny you should say outside the united states right because i'm outside of my original country by that's a being. Right. That's right. Yeah. And this, and this country okay. made a huge impression on me before I ever even got here. I, I was drawn to America long before I ever moved here mm-hmm. because of all the movies that I've watched and because of having older family members who'd moved here mm-hmm. um, yeah, in back in the 50s. And so um, the landscape of America, much of which sadly these days is getting, um, you know, is burning down or is getting its status as, you know, its park status revoked and that kind of thing. You know, I, I fear for the natural spaces in America. Um, but nonetheless, I've found it to be incredible to uh, be privileged to go to so many beautiful places in America outside of the cities. Um, I also, I, I, I really enjoyed Italy when I went there years ago. Found it extremely beautiful and um, uh, just captivating, visually captivating for me, all the different places I went. And the food was 
always amazing, even when it was very simple. Um, similarly, you know, places, small villages around France that I went to as well, really enjoyed that. I used to hitchhike a lot, so I hitchhiked around Europe um, and uh, got to go to some places that were kind of a bit off the beaten tourist track. Mm-hmm. Those are the best, I think, when you when you can find yeah. that in the hole in the wall. I remember going to Berlin and eating for the first time new Sudanese food. Oh, really? <laughs> I, I first got to in eat Berlin. Sudanese food in Berlin, right? Some Sudanese yeah. guys, you know, because I'm from Kenya originally. Yeah. Um, so that was a, an amazing experience that I still remember to this day, right? Kind of talking to that, you know, person there and kind of having that instant rapport as, as another fellow African. Yeah. Um, it was amazing stuff. Uh, so have you been to Africa? Is that any countries in Africa? Are you? Well, funny, um, I was remembering the conversation with my partner and, and West Africa specifically came to my mind just because there's a, there's a drum teacher that I know who's from Guinea. Mm-hmm. And... Um, and so he he takes people to his village for like a month at a time or something, for like super intensive drum instruction for a month at a time. Mm-hmm. Um, and I thought to myself, that would be an amazing thing to do. I think I'd really, really enjoy doing that. And my my niece um, spent some time in Sierra Leone as part of a conservation project. And I think she really enjoyed her time there as well. She was in a small village, I think, a lot of the time. So. Yeah, and then my, my partner was talking about really wanting to go to um, to see the incredible li- wildlife, which, you know, bring, brought to my mind Kenya and brought to her mind Tanzania, I think. And uh, I don't know which of those is a bigger place for seeing incredible wildlife. But, um, but yeah, there's, a, there's definitely a draw to... I just... Um, so much... So much inspiration comes from the natural world. I mean, we are part of the natural world in a certain sense. This is its own ecosystem right here, but um, being out in the forests and out on the plains and that kind of thing is something that I've already always really enjoyed. Um, so yeah, I think I would love that. Um, and uh, nonviolent communication has an increasing foothold uh, in different places around Africa. I know various people who are teaching there and um, so that would be fun too. Wherever I go, if I can, if I can share some of what I do for a living with people who are interested, it makes the trip so much more enjoyable for me. I spent a bunch of time in Poland, but always teaching when I went there. Uh-huh. Um, and uh, yeah, so maybe that's in my future too to do some teaching in Africa. I, I would enjoy that. I think. I've actually got a friend that I met through LinkedIn who's in South Africa. She's a clinical psychotherapist. And I think that could be a great place for you to, you know, I see a lot of conferences happening there, getting a lot of um, kind of like, uh, you know, info through this friend. And I think that could be a great place. Maybe the two of you should talk and, yeah. and uh, this could, could finance your, uh, you, you know, your trip to Africa, kind of make it a work play kind of thing like you had said. Right. Yeah. So it all connects together. Cool. So last three Look questions. Yeah. So uh, real quick, uh, what books are you reading right now? Any, any, uh, what's on your bookshelf at the moment, um, and uh, what are you learning? And uh, the, the the most recent books that you've uh, managed to read. I tend to read multiple books at once. Um, I'm I'm reading uh, Choosing Peace by uh, John Kenyon and Ike Lasseter, who are my original trainers in um, mediation using nonviolent communication. Mm-hmm. I'm reading uh, The Better Angels of Our Nature by. Um, Pinker, Stephen Pinker. 
yeah. which is uh, making the case, uh, scientific case, for how there's actually less violence, human-on-human -human violence, much, much less now than at any other point in history, in spite of how it seems. Um, so I'm enjoying that one. And I'm also reading Reinventing Organizations, the one I mentioned before. Uh -huh. uh, and uh, I'm also looking forward to reading a book um, that, oh, it's called First Break All the Rules. That's another one which is, you know, about, about organizations. And there's another one that a, fr a friend and uh, client gave to me recently um, called Ready Player One, I think it's called. And it's about a possible future in which basically everyone is just kind of living in virtual reality almost all the time, you know, and living out their lives in virtual reality, which it's, some people think, will be the case. I think they made a movie about that. But I saw the yeah, it wasn't, the reviews were not that great, but to me, the trailer was fascinating. I mean, I, I really want to go see it, but the reviews kind of discouraged me because I do check the reviews. Yeah, um, yeah. If it's under 90%, uh, you know, it's always tricky. I like to see at least 80%. I, I yeah, think it's yeah. like way below like 50% or something like that. So I, I hesitated, uh, but but it seems, yeah, you know, you, you're, it's looking at, literally, we could say that this life, in a sense, is virtual reality because there's a TED talk about how we're literally hallucinating our, our, our reality. Basically, That's true. Right? So brain, the, the, the brain is this squishy mass that never sees outside the skull, right? So everything right. you're going right. through, right, is a carefully curated, um, you know, uh, vision rather uh, uh, image that is very carefully constructed. And the way to yeah. prove this, uh, Nude, that I heard from my friend, uh, Lewis, who's into VR, he says, Eli, if you look in front of you, if you look straight ahead, can you see your nose? Right. <laughs> right? But if you bring, your, really? you, you bring your finger to your nose, and it's clear that the nose is, it's getting edited out uh, so that we can have full vision. So it's kind of interesting when you look at it that way. Yeah. Um, Actually, it's, it's a, to to uh, not wanting to drag us back in a serious direction, but um, it's something to real about, realize about communication and human relationship that people are basically uh, almost always relating to a fictional version of you that they have constructed inside their own minds. Oh. So when they when they call you a name or insult you, they're actually insulting some construct that they've created for themselves, and um, you know. If they if they knew more about you, the, 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 it would re, it would change the construct. If they allowed in new data about you, kind of thing, it would become closer to you in a certain sense. But often people just create this fiction based on relatively few uh, data points. You know, you look like that, um, and that's and then a few other things, and now they built you in their mind. So to be a more skillful communicator and enjoy human relationship more, it's. It's, uh, I found it useful to kind of remember that and, in, and instead almost be fresh in every moment in the sense of like, yeah, I've spoken to you before, but I don't know what's going on with you right now. Um, and, I'm, and I'm curious about what's going on with you right now, you know, like that. So it's not just me being like, oh, there's Eli, yeah, same old Eli, same, same structure that I've got in my head already. Nothing new, nothing else to be known, no mystery. Wow, that is really powerful, dude. Because I'm thinking about somebody right now that I'm not talking to, right? And it's because I see them in a certain way, and therefore I'm expecting the same thing to happen next time yeah. I engage them, right? So I'm like, well, 
I'm just not gonna engage this person. Somebody that I that I care about, somebody that I know very well, I'd love to 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 engage them. But because of the like you said, this story, and they've even told me that, you know, I I have put them in a box. I mean, you, yeah. the, way you, the way you see me, I feel like you've put me in this box. Right. And that means that it 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 affects how they see me and engage with me. And now I'm I'm seeing the truth of that. Right? Mm. But, because it, when you put it like that, it's like you know, we're all evolving creatures every single day a new data point comes in and we can choose to change that story that narrative right you know i can choose to be kind or just to be clever and correct so if my narrative means that i'm choosing kindness and i'm choosing to be more compassionate that becomes the way that i'm playing out that narrative and that's how i'm i'm, I'm putting that layer on top of somebody else's behavior to make it easier to engage them, to give them a chance to create a new story in my mind. Sure. That yeah. is really, really deep, new. Yes, openness, yeah. opening the heart, opening the mind, opening the eyes. Uh, yeah, exactly. And not, not just believing the fiction that you're manufacturing or even the fiction that they're trying to manufacture for you, you know, kind of thing. Sometimes people want you to create a certain view of them as being the successful one or the or the victim or the whatever it is that they're looking for you to create. And there's relevance to all of that and there's a place in, in, for people's narratives to be uh, made room for, you know, in terms of, I want to know how you see yourself. I want to know how you're uh, viewing your life and that kind of thing. And at the same time, I don't want to start believing that you are only ever what you show me or only ever what you tell me about yourself. And there's nothing more to you it's possible because then I am putting you in a box you know Marshall Rosenberg used to say the second you label someone you put them in a box and I do mean a coffin he would say that's the box that you're putting them in they basically become dead in your mind because they're no longer alive like you say evolving changing uh, beings they're now just this flat thing that you know, you've 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 uh, so you've frozen them in time in your own mind. Amazing. Um, and I'm kind of curious real quick because you brought him up. Uh, what was Marshall Rosenberg's breakthrough? What led him to this great tool that is that is given us? I mean, like, you know, was it something, a shifting, something that happened to him? I don't think I've really kind of delved deeply into, into the man uh, behind the methodology, but... What were some yeah. of the things that really drove him to to do this work and, and create this legacy? Well, I'm going off memory of things that I've read of his and things that I've heard him say, but you know, years ago now. But um, you know, living up in a family, growing up in a family where there were some very very compassionate characters in his family, um, like really exemplary people, the kind of people who would take in a homeless person and let them live in their home for six months, that kind of thing. Mm -hmm. and uh which not all of us would do right mm -hmm. and, um and then at the same time growing up in detroit i believe during a time when there was a lot of race riots and a lot of unease and he you know he would get prejudice against him for being jewish he would also be in the black versus white kind of uh um uh aggressions he was on the white side of that right so he would be viewed in a certain way by some people who are on the other side of that and so he learned to um fight and like from what i hear you know he was involved in some fist fights on the street in order to 
protect himself. And for all I know, he might have been the aggressor sometimes, you know, because he certainly would talk about himself as, as having been a much more aggressive man before he started to educate himself more. But he was educated in college partially by Carl Rogers. Carl Rogers was one of his big teachers. Mm-hmm. Um, and um, then, of course, psychologist, but very much a free thinker. And uh, I think just somehow always from the, from the Detroit times onwards, just always very fascinated by there were people who didn't create conflict around them. There were people who were good at re- uh, reducing tension and building bridges between different groups and so on. And um, so he was really interested in like, what, what's going on here? Like, why is it that some people have that capacity and other people are very quick to take sides and to make war? And, um, and, and what, what are the actual skills that go into it and the attitudes? And of course, uh, you know, there's the, all the stories about Gandhi coming through and then there's um, very actively Martin Luther King in America. And so those names featured very big for him, you know, in terms of examples of nonviolence and examples of people who were really apparently striving for peace and in remarkable ways. And so that's why he chose the name nonviolent communication. And I think that they were big, big inspirations for him. And so he, as I understand it, I'm not exactly sure of the chronology, but at some point he um, started putting together this whole kind of way of thinking about communication and conflict resolution and um, ended up getting called into a variety of places where wars either had recently been uh, waged or perhaps were still being waged you know uh, one of the places I know was Nigeria uh, Sierra Leone was another place he was sometimes was in uh, involved in Palestine and and, and um, Israel and um, a bunch of, I think he went to the Balkans as well in the period after the, the Balkan Wars, maybe maybe misremembering specifics. But yeah, he's, he somehow got on that train of just being a guy who would sit in a room with uh, a bunch of people from one tribe and a bunch of people from another tribe. And they'd been shooting at each other for quite a long time. And each of them had lost a lot of people to the other. And now here's Marshall Rosenberg sitting there in the room being like, all right, you know, uh, maybe there's a different way. Maybe there's a way where there's going to be end up end up being less death and um, and more dialogue and using the using the same tools that I teach to my to the extent that I'm able to teach them and um, that's my understanding really of his of his path. But uh, in uh, nonviolent communication, a language of life, which was his first book, um, there's there's probably a much deeper and fuller description of what brought him to to this work. Yeah. Yeah, any documentaries on him uh, that are out there, Netflix? I know there was someone making a, uh, a biography, and I don't know if it was just in book form or, or other form, and I and I haven't heard about it being released at all, so I might just have missed the news. Um, or, But I recently went to his website and uh, didn't see a book of his, of a biography of him. Oh. Um, but yeah, there's certainly lots of, you can find in a certain way, uh, something which might be even more valuable than a documentary about him. You can find whole day trainings where he's working with people um, from some years ago now, maybe 10, 15 years ago, something like that. But those exist on YouTube. 
I did see one and it's pretty powerful stuff. We talked about how our culture is one of violence. And if you look at any, you know, you know, given TV series or movie, there's always going to be this, right? Conflict between the winner and the loser. And it's always this violent struggle, right? Yeah. And, it's, and it's about winning. So that really kind of like hit me hard. That this is what we're taking in as children and kind of what we're all being trained to do. So win fights, yeah. right? Um, and that gave me some pause to kind of, you know, no wonder there's always a, t- a tussle happening in every conversation. And somebody's trying to, you know, you know, one up the other person as opposed to looking for uh, what somebody called an infinite, you know, kind of possibilities, you know, yes and, as opposed yeah. to no. So um, yeah, this this is really really powerful stuff, and I'm and I'm super super grateful that you took the time to to graciously talk to me. Uh, one last thing, what would you want the world to know about mute? What would I like the world to know about what? Mute. Baby. Oh, what would I like the world to know about mute? Um, <laughs> There's so many ways to answer that question. Exactly. Different, different exactly. Um, well, if I if I if I choose the level of, um, I think I've probably already said it. Really, it's like what I aspire to is to be ever more um, able to see the truth of myself and the truth of those around me and the truth of all of us actually beyond just those that I know and am able to touch or, or interact with and that's what's most important to me and I and I do have great faith that the combination of uh, truth with compassion, you know, or I often put it as, as you know, Eli, um, authenticity and kindness, same idea really. That, that, that combination of factors is an incredibly potent mixture. And, um, and that's what I'm hoping that I'm bringing more of into our society, into our planetary realm where we live. That's what I'm here to do. That's what I see myself as being here to do. And uh, and um, in all that that means, all of the love that that is, all of the play that that is, all of the kind of sincerity that that is, and the endeavor and the effort and everything that's in the, the human uh, play really, um, but trying to imbue it with with kindness and authenticity. Um, to the greatest extent that I can. So that's what I want people to know about me. Man, that's incredible, Newt. Uh, I don't think uh, anyone could have put that better than you did. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, People are welcome to try, but people might come out with different things about what I'm all about. Like, you know, my closest family members might come out with a whole different story and my closest friends back in England, who knows, but. Absolutely, absolutely. Mute, thank you so much for uh, recording this interview with me. Um, I'll definitely be uh, syndicate, you know, going, you know, packaging it up and, and getting some bites out there to share, you know, in small bits across uh, different streams and also the, the full, uh, you know, interview will be available um, once it's, it's, it's ready. Um, how can people get in touch with you if they want to work with you, they want to, you know, get to know more about you? 
What is the best way for folks to reach you? Well, of course, I'm there on LinkedIn. Um, and if they're watching this, there's probably going to be a link to my LinkedIn profile from there, right, I imagine. Um, yeah. My my website's communicationdojo.com is for my public offerings and private client work. And then newtbailey.com is for my work in organizations. So those are a couple of good ways to find me. And, uh, and the new newtbailey.com is on its way as well. So uh relaunching it to for the for the smartphone era i'm a little bit behind the times but uh you know it's happening wonderful any email addresses i can shoot you an email in case somebody's driving or for sure the the, the fairly easy to remember newt at communication dojo.com or newt at newtbailey.com either one of those works. I, li- I like the multiple options there Awesome, Newt. Thank you so much. Uh, You know, we'll definitely look forward to uh, more engaging content from you.